0: All right, while everybody is, uh, is coming in, one of the things that we've been uh, doing to help you understand a little bit more about Chafer Seminary and the impact it's having is to give some uh, testimonies from some of the students and from some of the faculty, so I'll be playing another uh, video for you. This is Doug Gray, who is a student at Chafer Seminary.
1: My name is Doug Gray, and I'm coming to you from uh, my wife's sewing room, which was is my classroom for the online delivery in my home. Uh, I'm currently enrolled in the second semester of Biblical Hebrew. I live in Fredericksburg, Texas, where God has allowed my lovely wife and I to raise our two children, and now to enjoy uh, our three grandchildren. I serve on the Council of Elders in my church, which is Fredericksburg Bible Church, which is a supporting church partner with Schaefer Theological Seminary. As far as my story goes, it's pretty simple. Um, I was just uh, minding my own business one day last summer and received an email from Schaefer with David Roseland promoting the beginning Hebrew course. Well, I immediately saw the value of taking such a course. And uh, let me just say about that that it's far exceeded my expectations. But beyond the value of the beginning Hebrew course, I've developed a great appreciation for Schaefer's uh, church partnership model and the opportunity available through the online delivery format. I can testify from experience that the model works, and I look forward to promoting additional uh, to uh, taking additional courses in the future. And I'm certainly going to promote the opportunity to others as well. So I applaud Schaefer for the vision to make this training available. And it's uh, truly a tremendous asset for ministry.
2: You guys hear me? We can. You can. Hello, hello. Oh, hello, hello. How's that work? All right. There's so many cords up here. I feel like I'm on a chain. <laughs> um. Well, let's take our Bibles and open them to Matthew chapter five and verse eighteen. Matthew chapter 5, verse 18. And this is the session in the conference where we uh, dedicate towards uh, the school. And a lot of people look at us and say, Another school, really? I mean, can't you guys just get with the program and piggyback on an existing school? So it really gets to a fundamental question: Why Chafer Theological Seminary? Uh, why would we go to all the time and trouble to start and continue on um, an additional institution when there are already many, already so many of them? So this is not going to be a presentation on all the bells and whistles discounts and units and da-da-da-da-da, this is really getting to the fundamental question of why uh, why we exist. And one of the things that we like to use to, if I can get this to move, uh, one of the things we like to do to sort of promote <laughs> <laughs> why we exist... <laughs> And that, that on the right there was some colorful artwork by my associate pastor. Uh, but one of the things we like to use to promote uh, Chafer Theological Seminary is that empty pulpit. And sometimes a picture paints a thousand words. And if you can think of that image in your church, the number of pastoral retirees, the number of people or churches that want a pastor, that can't find one. um, You start to understand why we are heavily invested in the school as we are. One of the big questions is who will teach your children? There's no guarantee that the churches that we have now are the same kind of churches that your children and grandchildren 'll grow up in, and uh, I get a lot of emails, I know you guys do too, but the number one email I get, and as as God is my witness, I get this email at least once a week and sometimes up to three times a week and what you, the email kind of goes like this they they describe their geographical locale, and what they say is i can't find a doctrinally sound Bible teaching church anywhere. And I've, I've tried this and tried that and nothing seems to be working. And so when you start getting these emails so frequently, you start to realize the scarcity that's out there. And some verses that come to mind when I get emails like this, let me share with you two of them. Both of these come from 8th century prophets Prophesying to the northern kingdom. One of them is Hosea. Hosea says, My people are destroyed for a lack of enthusiasm. Doesn't say that. My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. And his contemporary, Amos, said basically the same thing Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread. Or a thirst for water, but for hearing the words of the Lord. And I recognize that those passages have particular fulfillments in particular times of history, but I always think of those passages when I get these emails from people wanting to find sound. Bible teaching churches wanting to find pastors, and there simply are not enough of them to keep up with the demand that's out there. And this is where Chafer Theological Seminary, you know, enters the picture. I mean, this is one of the reasons why I am involved with the school as I am, because I see this need, and we need to train up a new generation of teaching pastors, Amen. So with that being said, what I want to trace you through very quickly in this presentation, then I'm going to hand it off to Charlie at the end, and he's got a few words he wants to say, is our distinctives. Uh, And these distinctives, if you understand them, will help you understand the why, answer the why question, why we exist at all. And we don't really believe these are our distinctives we believe these are God's distinctives. And it is very difficult to find institutions that want to honor these distinctives. So that's why this presentation is not just going to give you information about our catalog. It's going to take you to the mind of God. And if you understand the mind of God and how God thinks about certain things, you can understand the vision for Chafer Theological Seminary, why we exist. The first distinction is Scripture's original languages. Jesus, you can't get a higher authority than Jesus, amen? This is what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, verse 18. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or strokes shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. And when Jesus articulated that, he was articulating with a a, a ministry philosophy. And what he was saying is in the original writings of Scripture, every single letter is there because God put it there. And every single mark making up the letter was there because God put it there. And once you have enough letters, then you have words. Amen? Matthew 4, verse 4, you can follow me over there. It says this, Jesus still speaking, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every, what? Word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Now, this is not just a Chafer distinctive. This is what Jesus himself said. And he was making a statement about the original manuscripts of Scripture. He's saying that the strokes of the pen are there because God put them there. Those strokes make up the letters. The letters are there because God put them there. Those letters make up the words. Those words make up the sentences. Those sentences make up the paragraphs. And those paragraphs make up the chapters. And so the moment... God decided to disclose himself in linguistic form, which is what we call the scripture or the Bible, is the moment God articulated a ministry philosophy. And that ministry philosophy involves a facility or an understanding of scripture's original languages. If someone is not teaching from the original languages of scripture, he is dishonoring Uh, this particular ministry philosophy as espoused by our Lord. And as you all know, the original languages of Scripture would be Hebrew, Greek, and you know what else? Aramaic. (laughs) Because there's touches of the Old Testament Hebrew Bible in particular that are written in Aramaic, like the whole chiasm there of Daniel 2 through 7. So when that becomes something that you see in our catalog, uh, uh, we want students to be knowledgeable in those three languages. That's not something that we invented. That's something that comes directly from the lips of Christ. And it is true that you can probably, with your English version of the Bible, discern or ascertain the basic message of the Bible. But it's the difference between watching a movie in black and white or watching it in color. I much prefer to watch movies in color than black and white. And unless someone has some facility in the original languages of Scripture, the only thing they can really read or the only thing they can communicate is a black and white message and not the full color version that God gave us. And I don't know about you, but I went through some original language training. Languages is, is hard. It's, it's hard for me. It was hard for me to learn. It's hard for me as a busy pastor to keep up. I've probably lost a lot of my abilities, uh, particularly in Hebrew, just because of a lack of use. And, and languages is not like church history or some other subject where you learn a certain fact, you give it back on the exam, and you move on. You know, who was Martin Luther? Well, I can memorize a few things about Luther. Church reformer, etc. Give it back on the exam and move on. That's not how languages are. Languages are such, I would guess, like music. It's something that you have to practice over and over and over and over again to develop any real skill in it. And this is why when our founding president, George Meisinger, started this school, he was looking at curriculum and how essentially what was happening is some kind of other courses were pushing out languages or lowering the requirement for languages. And so he went through the curriculum and deleted essentially any course because students have only so much time in the day. That was a distraction. And so that today remains one of our distinctives, is the original languages of Scripture. And if, in fact, the very words of God and the very letters and the very strokes of the pen are there because God put them there, you start to see how we think about things happening in evangelical scholarship like in the area of redaction criticism, redaction criticism is sort of this idea that, you know, Jesus, when he spoke, maybe his exact words aren't that important. He just gave us the general gist and summarized what was said. Or the biblical writers aren't giving us the exact words of Christ. They're just kind of summarizing what Christ said. That goes directly against Matthew chapter 5, verse 18 where we learn that everything in the scripture is there by divine design, right down to the smallest strokes of the pen. That's why we had uh, Dr. David Farnell as one of our speakers a couple years ago, because he exposes this inroads of historical criticism into not liberalism, but into evangelical scholarship. And so here's our distinctive, and I'm sharing these mostly from our own catalog. And our website. And we have five distinctives. And I'm going to be petitioning our board to add two more, which I'll share with you today. But this distinctive number one is we share the deep conviction. Notice it's not just a conviction, it's a deep conviction that the teaching of the Word of God itself builds believers up in the faith for fruitful service. Therefore, Greek and Hebrew, now we need to add one, don't we? Aramaic. Not by my will. I mean, this is what Jesus said about his word. Therefore, Greek, Hebrew, and Aramaic exegesis is foundational to our school's program. So that's emphasis number one. No compromise when it comes to training future teachers of God's church in the original languages of Scripture. Distinctive number two is a commitment to the consistent, important word there, Consistent literal method of interpretation. So if it is true that God himself has disclosed himself in written form via the scripture, there has to be some sort of method available by which that message can be deciphered. And we believe that it is the consistent literal grammatical historical contextual method of interpretation which is the best way to understand not just the bible but any written document and i would just hope and pray for the day that our justices on the supreme court would see things (laughs) like we do here and when you talk about literal interpretation it's not even just so much academics it's an attitude of the heart it's an attitude that comes to the Lord and says, you know, I'm not, I don't want to be in the position of editing God. I'm not here to correct the Bible. The Bible is here to correct me. And so therefore, what is the best way of ascertaining authorial intent? It is a consistent application of the literal, grammatical, historical, contextual method of interpretation. And so that becomes one of our distinctives as well. So we say as follows, we adopt a consistent, literal, historical, grammatical, contextual, hermeneutic, watch this now, in every portion of Scripture. Now, I realize we're living in this postmodern time period where when you use the word literal, everybody wants to do a straw man argument. And they say, well, some of the things uh, Scott Annual was correcting up here that we don't believe in figures of speech, and that kind of thing. So we always have to offer these qualitate, qual, uh, qualifying statements. Literal interpretation accepts the fact that there is either plain literal language or figurative literal language. One is called uh, denotative language. One is called connotative language. In other words, we acknowledge, obviously, and it sh- this shouldn't even have to be said, but it has to be said because of the straw man argument leveled against literal interpretation. We obviously acknowledge figures of speech when they're conspicuous in the biblical text. I like the way Charles Ryrie puts it. He says literal interpretation might also be called plain interpretation so that no one receives the mistaken notion that literal principle rules out figures of speech. So if you ever fall for that straw man argument that somehow we don't respect figures of speech just because we're literal interpreters, I would encourage you to get E.W. Bullinger's book. You can see the dates of his life. It's a classic book because it's still being used, you know, over a century later. And it's about a thousand pages, and it stood the test of time. And he was a very literal guy, and he deals with every single figure of speech you could ever possibly have. Some that you can't even pronounce, some of these figures of speech. So this this idea is a mischaracterization. Now, you'll notice our distinctive here. We adopt not just a literal method of interpretation, but a consistent literal method. In other words, we want to take this method and we want to apply it not just in Romans, not just in the Gospels, but from Genesis to Revelation. And once you see that, you start to see where Chafer Theological Seminary lands on the theological landscape in terms of a lot of different issues. For example, when we look at Genesis 1 through 11, we look at it as historical narrative. And as you read it from the literal framework, you start to understand that this world that we're living in is probably not billions of years old. It's probably more in the line of thousands rather than billions. There's not a lot of room for from the goo to the zoo to you over billions of years theology if you become a priori committed to a literal method of interpretation. And this is also true with Bible prophecy. John Walvoord in 1994 was asked what do you predict will be the most significant theological issue over the next 10 years? He responded, the hermeneutical problem of not interpreting the Bible literally, especially the prophetic areas. The church today is engulfed in the idea that one cannot interpret prophecy literally. Would you not say that's true? Um, The subject of Bible prophecy is under attack all of the time. Rick Warren, best-selling author, called America's Pastor, wrote a run wrote a runaway bestseller called The Purpose-Driven Life. Um, Countless Christians read this and have this on their shelf at home. And on pages 285 and 286, in print, coming from within, is one of the most scathing attacks you could ever read on the whole subject of Bible prophecy. He just builds one straw man argument after another. He says, when the disciples wanted to talk about prophecy, Jesus changed the subject to evangelism. And I guess he hasn't read the Olivet Discourse Jesus apparently said the details of my return are none of your business. Still having a difficult time finding that verse. (laughs) And then of course, here come the straw men. If you're into Bible prophecy, you're one of those crazy date setters. You're distracted from your mission. Satan. Wow. We're going to pull Satan in on this. Satan is distracting you. You're not serious about your mission and you're not even fit for the kingdom of God. Now, The reason I bring these things up is I'm trying to show us what we're up against here, how we're fighting upstream in terms of maintaining a commitment to a literal understanding of God's Word from Genesis to Revelation. The doctrine of the rapture is under attack. Rick Joyner writes, "...the doctrine of the rapture was a great and effective use of the enemy to implant in the church a retreat mentality." Already this yoke has been uh, cast off by the majority of the advancing church, and it will soon be cast off by all. The Evangelical Free Church of America late last year has already dropped premillennialism from its doctrinal statement on the grounds that that particular church now considers premillennialism a non essential so let's take our Bibles today and let's turn to the non essential section. Can we do that? <laughs> um, I, I've never understood this non essential thing and who, who decides that. But this is this is where we're this is where we're swimming. This is why the school needs to exist. Of course, Justin Martyr thought premillennialism was an essential. Justin Martyr even says, if you don't believe in premillennialism, back then they called it Kiliasm, you're not even an Orthodox Christian. Wow. And here's a pastor, Mark Dever. Mark Dever says this. So if you're a pastor, this guy's very big in the Gospel Coalition and things like that. If you're a pastor and you're listening to me, Understand me correctly if you think I'm saying you are in sin. See, Rick Warren uses Satan, Mark Dever uses sin. If you lead your congregation to have a statement of faith that requires a particular millennial view, so just posting your eschatology, which we do here, we do it at Sugarland Bible Church for pre pre. We're so pre pre, we don't even eat post toasties. <laughs> pre tribulational, premillennial. Well, Mark Dever says that's a sin to even post that. That's, that's where we're at here uh, in the body of Christ. And this is a tragedy because prophecy, 2 Peter 1 19, is is there to function as a light shining in a dark place. Would you say the world is in a dark place? Yeah. I mean, what gives people hope in the midst of darkness is the light of Bible prophecy. And as you probably know, 27% of the Bible was prophetic uh, at the time it was written. And so if we're holding to this consistent literal method of interpretation, we're not into a method of interpretation which says somehow the New Testament changes or cancels what's in the Old Testament particularly when God has made a promise, let's say to national Israel, that's never been fully fulfilled. Why don't we use the New Testament to cancel the Old Testament? Because of what we're talking about here, not just a literal method of interpretation, but consistently holding it from Genesis to Revelation. So there's a lot of people... To me, they sound more like Muslims than they do evangelicals because Muslims believe in the doctrine of abrogation, that one set of Quranic texts can actually cancel another set. So when Muhammad got the upper hand, suddenly all of the revelation God gave him about peace with one's neighbors disappeared those texts were abrogated by the violent revelation that he now received. And that is not, if you believe that, then you're not, A, with the Bible, you're not holding to a consistent method of interpretation, and B, you're basically saying that what God said in other parts of his word were lie lies, which would violate God's character. So just to give you an example of this, name, Atik, says Christians can measure the validity and authority of the biblical message for life when confronted with a difficult passage in the Bible like Ezekiel 36 for example one needs to ask such simple questions as is this the way i'm is is the way i'm hearing the way i have come to know God in Christ does this picture I have of God that Jesus is the picture Jesus has revealed to me? Does it match the character of God whom I love, whom I have come to know through Christ? If it does, then the passage is valid and authoritative. If not, then I cannot accept its validity or authority. You see what's happening here is a subjective standard is being used, allegedly coming from the Old Testament. New Testament rather, to cancel Old Testament texts. Schaefer Seminary doesn't go here that direction because of this commitment to this particular distinctive. That, by the way, is why we are not so-called progressive dispensationalists. A progressive dispensationalist is somebody who, first of all, is not progressive nor dispensationalist, but other than that slight problem is someone who believes in what's called complementary hermeneutic where the New Testament comes along and adds allegedly layers of truth to Old Testament passages when those Old Testament passages are not talking about this new layer of truth at all. And so they believe that the the New Testament is actually expanding the meaning of Old Testament passages. And so that's how they get this idea that Jesus is now reigning on David's throne currently when the Old Testament is very clear that David's throne is not in heaven but where? On the earth. See, And, and this, is, this whole theological division is an abandonment of a consistent approach literally to the whole Bible. So I'm just trying to show you why these things are actually relevant. The third commitment that we have, and these are coming in a particular order. So if you don't have the first two, you can't have the third. The third commitment or distinctive that we have is a commitment to dispensational theology. And you'll notice what we say. As a result of our literal hermeneutic, we are dispensational, i.e., we believe that Israel and the church are distinct entities And that God's purpose in history is doxological. Now notice the beginning part of that distinctive. We're not dispensationalists because we think it's neat. We're dispensationalists because we first became committed to a literal understanding of the Bible. And dispensationalism, like free grace theology, which we'll get into just a little bit, naturally arises out of the text. So uh, as a result of our literal hermeneutic, we are dispensational. Now, what, what does that even mean, dispensational? It means a commitment to at least three things. Number one, the consistent use of the plain or normal, literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation. We just covered that. Number two, which reveals... In other words, if God has disclosed himself in linguistic form and the literal method of interpretation consistently applied is the best way to decipher God's message, then you start to see something in the text, such as a distinction between Israel and the church. Number three, as God is bringing to pass his overall purpose of glorifying himself. So what does that even mean? It means we believe the church is the church and Israel is Israel. Israel and the kingdom is one program. The church is a different program. Well, gosh, if that's true, maybe Jesus is coming back differently for both groups. Maybe he's coming back for the church in the rapture and he's coming back for Israel at the end of the tribulation period. And consequently, if that's true, that begins to shape your understanding of what the local church is. If Christ is going to return at the end of the tribulation period and set up his kingdom, and we are not in that age now, but we're in the church age, then how much time should we spend now trying to set up Christ's kingdom for him? I don't think we should spend any time at all. Well, what should we be doing? Robert Leitner articulates the three purposes of the church. You can see the scriptures he's getting these things from. Glorify God, edify the saints, and to fulfill the Great Commission. Notice that one of the purposes of the church is not to bring social justice to the earth. Because social justice is a kingdom condition, and we know who's going to establish the kingdom. It's not going to be us, it's going to be Jesus Christ. And so I very much like what Hal Lindsey says in his book, The Road to Holocaust, where he warns the last days of the church on earth may be largely wasted. See that? seeking to accomplish a task that only the Lord himself can and will do directly. And so consequently, this takes us out of the social justice mindset. And that's not where the body of Christ, to a large extent, is headed. They're headed towards social justice. Brian McLaren talks about how it was Christ's purpose to train 12 and to bring the kingdom to the earth and social justice uh, to the earth. And what you really start to see with social justice theology is a commitment to the left-wing politics. Brian McLaren says, when social justice comes to the earth, we're going to be finished with young earth creationism. We're going to be finished with God's gender distinctions within ministry. We're going to be invested in the stewardship of the earth, the plight of the Palestinians. We're going to be finished with one-sided support for Israel. And we're going to be promoting homosexuals and transgender persons. I mean, this is sort of what they're talking about when they keep talking about social justice, social justice. They're pouring into it their own sort of meaning, depending on where they already fit or sit on the political Spectrum. Kevin DeYoung of the Gospel Coalition says Matthew 25 is about social justice. No, it's not. Because I'm a dispensationalist. And Matthew 25 has a specific contextual framework that goes with it. But if you don't believe that, then you just make it about social justice. Matthew 25 is about social justice in the sense that it's about caring for the needy. Jesus says if we are too embarrassed or too lazy or too cowardly to support the needy, we will go to hell. Did you know your Bible says that? We should not make this passage say any more or any less. That's why the guys in the social justice movement are always down on dispensationalists. They're always attacking dispensationalists. Because a dispensationalist says, no, that passage has a contextual framework. You can't just willy-nilly apply it any which way you want. By the way, you probably know this, that America is an institutionally racist society. That's what they say. Systemic racism. And in the book Divided by Faith, which sells like hotcakes in social justice circles, you know who's responsible for this systemic racism in the United States. Did you know who it is? It's you. Because you're holding to premillennial theology. So that's why a book that I brought, and I was very happy that we sold out of them yesterday, and I brought some more, and I hope we'll sell out again. A book that I contributed to, along with many others, called Social Injustice. And my particular chapter deals with how the social justice movement is destroying, in church after church after church, in school after school after school, our understanding of eschatology and our understanding simply comes from a consistent literal reading of the Bible. And so even if you don't like the book or think you would say things differently in the book, it's a great model because I think this is the kind of thing that Schaefer should get involved in, critiquing these movements within the church from our own uh, framework and our own distinctives. So our our third commitment is to dispensational theology. Our fourth commitment is to what I would call the full counsel of God's Word. Now where are we getting this from? Well look at look at Jesus again. Jesus answered and said to them, It is written, man shall not live. Now do you think it's essential to live? That's pretty pretty fundamental. Man shall not live on bread alone, but on 95% of the words, no, every word that comes from the mouth of God. Paul, in his final letter in 2 Timothy, says all Scripture is inspired by God. Now, these are not Chafer Theological Seminary statements. These are in your Bible, and we're trying to build a distinctive upon what God has revealed and if you believe those last two scriptures Matthew 4:4 4, 4 and 2 Timothy 3:16 suddenly that shapes your ministry philosophy and you see this ministry philosophy coming out in the ministry of the apostle paul where he summoned the ephesian elders at the end of his third missionary journey in miletus and he was teaching as a shepherd Other shepherds, how to be shepherds. And in that context, Paul says, Therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. For I did not shrink from declaring to you the what? The whole purpose of God. Why would he say that? It's related to Christ saying every word is there by divine design and necessary for spiritual life. And what does he mean here when he says, I am innocent of the blood of all men? You ever thought about that? What does that even mean? I think you get an answer to that in the book of Ezekiel. You might want to slip over there for a minute. Chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, where God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I have appointed you. As a watchman to the house of Israel, whenever you hear a word from my mouth, warn them from me. When I say to the wicked, you shall, uh, you shall surely die, and you do not warn him, or speak out to warn the wicked from his wicked way, that he may live, that wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. Wow. Yet if you have warned the wicked and he does not turn from his wickedness or from the wicked way he shall die in his iniquity but you have delivered yourself. In other words if you're the watchman and you with if it, God gives you something to say and you say it then it's really up to the listener as to what they're going to do. They're responsible for themselves. But if you withhold what God says because you're trying to be topical or relevant or whatever the excuse is, then God says, I'm coming after you as the watchman. And when you understand this, and people say, it's just the Old Testament. That doesn't matter. Look, look, this is New Testament. Paul says, I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not... I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. By the way, God says this to Ezekiel not once, but twice. Because Ezekiel is commissioned in the first part of his book to preach judgment, chapter 3, and he's commissioned at the end of his book to preach restoration, chapter 33. And so you'll find God saying this two times to Ezekiel, once in chapter 3, verses 17 through 19, once in chapter 33, verses 7 through 9. Now, do you believe this is true? That God holds shepherds accountable for what they say and what they withhold? Then that shapes your educational philosophy, doesn't it? We've got to figure out a way as we move students through our material to expose them to the whole purpose of God. How do we do that exactly? We do it two ways. Number one, systematic theology. Where we expose students to all ten big-ticket items in the Bible covering major subjects. That's what systematic theology is. There's at least ten such subjects coming directly from the Bible. We might even add an 11th. Arnold Fruchtenbaum had to make it difficult on us because <laughs> he says you left out Israelology in addition to all these other ologies. Now, there's a second way we do this, and it's through what is called Bible exposition. Bible exposition is typified by a chart like this. This was, this was what Charlie Dyer gave to me in the class I had with him. I could not make heads nor tails of the book of Ezekiel and see, seen how the whole thing fits together until he put that chart up. Now you're backing up to about the 10,000-foot level, and you're looking at the whole flow of the book of Ezekiel. And what you see is, oh, my goodness, the book of Ezekiel is symmetrical. Did you know that? The things happening at the beginning of the book are repeated at the end of the book. His mouth is closed. End of the book, his mouth is opened. Beginning of the book, he's preaching judgment. End of the book, he's preaching restoration. Towards the beginning of the book, the Shekinah glory of God departs from the temple. End of the book, the glory of God returns to the millennial temple. And what counterbalances those two sections is the judgment on the nations. Now, unless I had had Bible exposition training, I would have never known that. I could have studied original languages until the cows came home, but I would have never understood how the book of Ezekiel synthetically looks from the 10,000-foot level. And so a lot of it reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says concerning spiritual gifts. You know, one person with one gift says to another person, Oh, you know, I don't need you. The fact of the matter is we need all of this. All of it has to come together in unison to understand the full purpose of God. You need the languages. But guess what? In my experience, 90% of language issues are resolved by understanding context. Well, how in the world would I ever understand context? Bible exposition helps me understand context. But how do I know if an interpretation that I have in one part of the Bible is not running afoul of the revelation of God in other parts of the Bible? Systematic theology helps me with that. So one of the opportunities that I had when I first came on board with Chafer is to sort of take the things in our curriculum that were good, but just to sort of upgrade them. And I brought in that Bible exposition mindset, not to compete with original languages or systematic theology. At the end of the day, the three disciplines are friends. They're not enemies. So with Bible exposition, if you go through our curriculum, by the time you finish, you'll be able to think your way through every single book of the Bible. You may not know everything there is to know about every little factoid in every chapter, but when your pastor says, open to Ezekiel 4, suddenly a chart appears in your mind where you say, okay, I generally know what that part of the Bible is about. That's Bible exposition. So Genesis through Judges is a class. First Samuel through Esther is a class. Wisdom literature is a class. Prophets is a class. Gospels is a class. Acts Paul is a class. Hebrews through Revelation uh, is a class as well. In harmony with... Systematic theology in harmony with original languages study. And this is sort of the heart and soul of what we're trying to do in terms of raising people up to meet this massive need out there. We can't find a Bible teaching church. And this influences, if you believe everything I've said, this influences pedagogy. Meaning... Our goal is not to raise up preachers that give you three points in a poem. It's to raise up teachers of the full counsel of God's word. And that is what is lacking out there. And that's why there's this malnourishment out there. And that's why everybody's sending all these emails that they can't find a a Bible teaching church. Verse by verse study of the Bible is under assault by the pastors themselves. Andy Stanley, the son of legendary Charles Stanley, recently said Christians need to unhitch the Old Testament from their faith. Now my question for him is, well how do you think the early church spread the message when the New Testament was just being compiled? The only thing they had was what we call Old Testament. And yet with just the Old Testament itself... Acts 17, verse 6 tells us they turn the world upside down. Stanley says, guys that preach verse by verse through books of the Bible, that's just cheating. It's cheating because that would be easy, first of all. Uh, (laughs) That isn't how you grow people. There, no one in Scripture modeled that. There's not one example of that. Do, do you realize that he has the largest church in the United States, last time I checked, or one of the largest? And he—he's—it's like Rick Warren attacking eschatology through a Christian bestseller. That's what's happening as an attack is being waged against pedagogy, the proper pedagogy that's to take place within a church. Brian Broderson is the heir to Chuck Smith, who I grew up under, listening to many, many sermons. And all Chuck Smith did is teach the Bible verse by verse. I used to go to his Sunday night services. And I don't want to broad brush guys in his movement because I know that a lot of them, most of them don't agree with what Brian Broderson says here. But Brian Broderson is now on record saying, I think you can preach the whole counsel of God without teaching all 66 books of the Bible. Now this dovetails with what Scott Annual was saying in the prior session about it's not just what, it's how God has disclosed himself. People say, well, why do you teach verse by verse? Because that's how God disclosed himself. So the full counsel of God's word, although it used to be sort of taken for granted, that has to be restated as a distinctive of Chafer Seminary. And that takes us to a fifth distinctive, which is the sufficiency of the scriptures. You'll find this in our written materials. We believe in the complete adequacy of scripture, for in it God has given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. We hold therefore that the word of God by itself is sufficient to prepare a person for a lifetime of effective ministry. Now, it's interesting, Paul's last will and testament was 2 Timothy, written just prior to his death. Peter's last will and testament was 2 Peter written just prior to Peter's death. And in both books, 2 Timothy and 2 Peter, and I would encourage you to study both together, there's a huge emphasis in the sufficiency of the Scripture. 2 Timothy 3:16 and 17 says all scripture is god-breathed and profitable for teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness, so that the man of god may be adequately equipped for 99% of good works. No, every good work. That's a sufficiency statement. In other words, what is in this book is capable of equipping you for your whole spiritual life. How to be a better businessman you'll find a lot in that or woman in this book how to be a father how do you be a father or a mother or a better husband or a better wife or how do you even as a child interact with your earthly parents how do you run a church i mean it's all here it's it's not it's not a matter of trying to somehow supplement what's in here with everything from the outside. It's a matter of believing that promise and investigating what God has said. Uh, 2 Peter 1, 3 and 4 says that his divine power has granted to us what? Everything, look at that, pertaining to life and godliness through a true knowledge of him who called us by his glory and excellence. And it goes on and it talks about these precious promises. In other words, promises is what equips you with everything for all matters of faith, godliness, and practice. We may take that for granted here, but this is how your typical seminary looks at the Bible. It's like a piece of Swiss cheese. It's got holes in it. So what do I do to plug up these holes? Well, I've got to delve into all this secular thought and plug up the holes. Oh my goodness, there's not enough information here for me to believe the creation of the Anthropos and creation of the cosmos, Genesis 1 through 11. I've got to plug that hole with something. Ah, Charles Darwin helps me. Or, and this was the great contribution of Jay Adams in his book, Competent to Counsel. He's, you know, how do we counsel people? A lot of pastors don't even feel that they're equipped to do it because they haven't been exposed to all this psychoanalytical theory. So the Bible's not enough to counsel people. I've got to fill the hole with something. I know Freud, Young, Skinner. Let's put those in there. By the way, Young had a spirit guide. How much, I mean, I don't even know if I would trust Carl Jung as a babysitter, let alone a preacher in my church. How do you run a church today? Well, the Bible isn't quite enough. So let's go to marketing. Maslow's Hierarchy of Needs. Or how do I really walk with the Lord? I mean, if I really want to get spiritual, how do I do that? Bible's not enough. I need to go into the spiritual formation disciplines. Mostly created by contemplative mystics who lived out in the desert under malnutrition and saw a lot of weird things. And so somehow they've got some sort of light that the Bible doesn't have, and I have to supplement the Bible with all of these mystics. I found this on Lighthouse Trails, where it says, My publisher, Lighthouse Trails, has been following this trend for over 12 years and has now discovered that some of the top accreditation associations for Christian schools are requiring spiritual formation to be implemented in schools before they can be accredited. Oh, so that's why Chaffer is sort of reticent about accreditation. I mean, who's going to be accrediting us exactly? Who's going to be sitting in judgment on us to receive this accreditation, assuming we go that route? We have no commitment right now to even go that route. Maybe we will in the future. But why even be reticent about that? I mean, don't you understand that if you get the full accreditation, you get more students, and more transferability with their degrees, well, is this going to compromise one of our distinctives? Are you going to now mandate spiritual formation on our students when we have already taken a stand on the sufficiency of the scriptures? And how about the whole subject of mysticism? I mean, is the Bible really enough or do I have to have some kind of subjective subliminal voice from God? I'm reminded of this, I found this on social media. <laughs> <laughs> Says it all, guy, Lord, please speak to me, you know. And then God, through the clouds, hands him a Bible. And, you know, you start to plug up the alleged holes in the Bible with all this secular thought. What do you do with 1 Peter 2, verse 2? Like newborn babes long for not just the milk of the word. You see the adjective in front of it? The pure milk. Think of the malnutrition that's caused in a child if you mix milk with some other foreign substance. Think of the malnutrition in that child. That is a description of the spiritual malnutrition in the body of Christ today because of an unwillingness to take a stand on the sufficiency of the Scripture. So the sufficiency of the Scripture is one of our distinctives. Number six, almost finished here. And this is not in our catalog, but I'm going to petition for it to be added. We want to take a stand on a biblically informed, comprehensive, worldview in contradistinction to the pagan culture. So when I was critiquing social justice a little earlier, you might think we have the mindset here that we're just going to retreat from the culture. And I think there's a way to counter the culture, not from a kingdom now social justice belief system, but from the belief system of the divine institutions. I mean, should we be holding out to the world a comprehensive worldview? Why not? The evolutionists do. Did you know that humanism and New Age and atheism and racism and Nazism and communism wouldn't exist without evolution? A great book on this is Henry Morris's book, The Long War Against God. And he's known more for his science. This is not a science book. This is a comprehensive worldview book. And so if the evolutionists can do it, why can't we do it with the Bible, particularly when we have these promises of sufficiency? I mean, with the Bible as the foundation, doesn't that inform politics, literature, industry, finances, music, Art, I should have added worship, since this is a worship conference. I mean, the Bible, if these promises of sufficiency are correct, it ought to inform all of these areas. And when the Bible brushes upon finances or industry, or, God forbid, a political issue like abortion or homosexuality or transgenderism, isn't the Bible just as inspired there? as when it gives us John 3:16. And so we want to be people at the school that are training not just technicians in original languages, which is very important. But we want to be training people that can take the knowledge that they're receiving from God's word and hold it up in contradistinction against the pagan direction. Of culture, and you know what we 've got the horses here at 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 uh, Chafer Theological Seminary to do this we 've got charlie Clough's framework series, which you 're all familiar with, which is doing just that it 's taking biblical truth and holding it up as a light against the trend of pagan culture. You know who we have on our faculty here at, at Sugarland at, uh, Sugar Bible Church? That's my, other, that's my day job. Schaefer <laughs> Theological Seminary. We've got a guy that we didn't even go out and recruit. He came to us. And his name is John Idesmo. We've had him as a speaker here a couple years ago. And I would say this, that John Idesmo is probably the greatest authority living. On the Christian roots of the United States. Everybody says, well, that's, that's David Barton. No, no. John Eidsmo was teaching all of this stuff long before David Barton came around. In fact, a lot of the people in the conservative political movement, if you trace them and their roots, they have their roots in John Eidsmo. Well, look at this. John Eidsmo is on our faculty. We didn't recruit him. He came to us. So we've got the horses and we've got the minds just in our little school to do exactly what we're talking about here with number six, to train people in a biblically informed, comprehensive worldview in contradistinction to the pagan culture. Now, this uh, picture was taken... Oh, I don't know 5 minutes from my church or less. It's this idea that Islam and Christianity are common faiths. Now, shouldn't we at Chafer Seminary be speaking to an issue like that? I mean, this to me looks like it's in our wheelhouse to critique that. So we've had uh, Sharam Hadian as one of our speakers here last year. And and look at our conferences, if you ever get a chance to go back And look at the topics in our conferences. You'll find the topics are dealing with each of these distinctives. When we put the conferences together, we're not just coming up with random thought. They're emphasizing these various distinctives at Chafer Theological Seminary. And you know what? You want to get into the culture? Forget the social justice movement. Forget Kingdom Now Theology. Let's do it from the perspective of the divine institutions. I mean, if the literal grammatical historical method of interpretation is right, and I can apply that to Genesis 1 through 11 unashamedly, then what we learn is God has built into fallen creation preservatives to sustain culture. Why aren't we talking about these things? Marriage, family, government, nationalism. These are all things from the Word of God. And so if you bought into all these other things that I've been trying to articulate, certainly one of our distinctives should be a biblically informed, comprehensive worldview in contradistinction to the pagan culture. And then uh, the last thing here, and we don't want to de-emphasize this at all, even though it's last on my list, it's certainly not last... In terms of priority, the consistent literal, grammatical, historical method of interpretation yields an understanding of soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, concerning the freeness of God's grace to the lost sinner. Notice what we write here. We hold fast to free grace. The view that God saves mankind by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No works, in this case good works, before, during, or after. Did you catch that? No good works before, during, and after the moment of initial faith in Christ contribute anything to the free gift of forgiveness and eternal life that one receives through Jesus Christ. Now, people in the body of Christ will agree with the first part of that. We hold to the free grace position. People say, praise the Lord. The view that man, that God saves mankind by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. Everybody in the room is applauding. No works before, everybody's applauding, no works during, everybody's applauding, or no good works after. Oh boy. <laughs> and you hear all the you know, you all know the James 2, all these passages people want to throw at you. I mean they'll 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 like you up to that last clause where you where you tell people that they're saved by grace. Grace did not get them in the door. Excuse me, heresy. Good works did not get them in the door. Good works don't keep you in the door. Grace keeps you in the door. Because that's the definition of grace. Now, you talk like that, oh, well there's a wall drawn right there. And see, you have to understand that this what this is what makes Chafer distinct is this commitment to grace. And you say, well, you guys don't care about good works. Well, look at the last sentence there. The absence of good works during or after the moment of faith subtracts nothing from one's eternal position in Christ. However, good works determine whether one will receive what? Rewards. So they are important. They just don't keep you saved. See that? Now that's, to my knowledge, you can count schools just uh, uh, on on your single hand that hold to a position like that and the ones that do don't embrace these other things either that we've been talking about what we have here is all seven coming together harmoniously paul says in romans 4 verses 4 and 5 but to the one who does not work but believes you see how believing is the opposite of a work so therefore when salvation is held out to the lost it's always held out on the basis of faith alone. This is Chafer Seminary and look what Chafer himself says. He says because upwards of 150 passages of scripture condition salvation upon believing only. Passages like Genesis 15:6, John 3:16, 16, Acts 16:30 16, 30, and 31 and what you find today is a total breakdown, or confusion in the three tenses of salvation. Justification, past tense of salvation. Sanctification, present tense of salvation. Glorification, future tense of salvation. Brother, are you saved? Yes, I'm saved, and I'm being saved, and I will be saved. And what people are doing is they're taking passages, and they do this all the time, from the middle column, And they import them into the first tense of salvation and consequently teach a works-oriented gospel without even knowing it. Or they will take the middle column and import it to the far right and sort of make it sound as if, gosh, unless all these things show up in your life, maybe you're not a Christian, which destroys, by the way, uh, the assurance of salvation. So Clearly, one of our distinctives is we want to take a stand on the issue of grace. And so I'll conclude with what I started with, that empty pulpit. I mean, who, who's going to teach these things to the next generation? You have to have a training institution that trains people up in these, in these truths. And there's a lot of people out there that want to donate to the school but they want to know what are they donating to exactly. And we're explaining that in this session. And there's a lot of people that want to teach at the school. There's a lot of people that want to promote the school, but they want to know what it is they're promoting. And we're trying to explain that in this session. So there's our distinctives. Scripture's original language, a consistent literal method of interpretation, which yields a dispensational theology which yields a desire to teach and study the full counsel of God's Word. And we ought to do that because, number five, the Scripture is enough. And then I don't just want to be a technician. Praise God for technicians. But we want to apply that to the pagan culture around us, and we want to maintain a stance on the freeness of God's grace. And we're going to have Charlie come up. And he's got a couple of. He's going to give the altar call. No, I don't. <laughs> Let's see. You need this or? Okay.
3: Uh, as you can tell from uh, what uh, Dr. Woods has done. Uh, there's a lot of work going on in the seminary, and it takes a lot of work to maintain it. So very quickly, I'm just going to go through three areas where we need help. And I'm going to appeal to you that if you know people in your congregation or if you're here today and you have interests or skills in these areas, um, please um, let that your presence be known Uh, or I will give you a contact point with our executive director when I'm finished here in a few minutes. First area where we need help is in order to work as we are online, our education is online and it's global. So you've got people in different time zones and so forth. To get this to work well, we need a learning management system. There are several learning management packages out there that universities are now using uh, for online education. Um, but what we need is someone who has experience with these systems who can coach us on whether it's a Blackboard, for example, is one, one package that uh, we, we can use. Um, but we need someone who has that experience uh, to help the faculty teach and administer quizzes and so forth across many time zones uh, with with a multiple of uh, audio uh, vehicles, video things and so on, PDF files. And when you increase the number of students, you increase the faculty load. And so universities have d- been devising learning management systems. So if you know someone who maybe is connected with a local community college or something that knows about these systems, we please let them or ask them if they would be interested in helping us, giving us some guidance. That's number one. Distant learning requires some sort of a learning management system. Second thing is We need people who are involved in social media to spread the word about the seminary. We need someone who can advise us on the most effective way of reaching out with people, Uh, particularly uh, the younger people that are used to the the social media. Um, The third area is technical help, Um, and this again, We need technical help in the social media. We need technical help on the learning management systems. So if any of you have people in your congregation, um, if you could talk to them and if you could uh, make them uh, realize that this would really help the mission that we've got here. Uh, Dr. Woods has just made the point that our seminary is is in a group of very small schools now. Uh, there's there's this dilution, this theological confusion that's crept in, and so if people are to receive proper education and training to fill the empty pulpit, um, we've got to build the school up to, to meet it. As uh, Dr. Woods has pointed out, there's not a week or two goes by, not only does he receive the emails, but... Uh, Our office manager receives emails. Churches, all of a sudden, the pastor leaves. Nobody in the church apparently has thought about continuity. You know, I've never understood this. Um, Why don't pastors think about who's going to replace them? It's like they never give it a thought. And then all of a sudden, the pastor either dies, he retires, or he leaves. Now everybody's running around like chickens with their head cut off trying to figure out who are we going to get in. And what happens is it's a very painful uh, thing of bringing a a stranger into your congregation. It takes two or three years basically to unpack his baggage to get to know people. Isn't it easier and simpler if you could think about having someone who would be ready uh, to take over? Um, We don't have the time right now, but um, I'm I'm going to point out uh, uh, my my pastor, uh, Mike Kenley, down here. Uh, Because in our local church, we've already got a succession plan. We've already have a job description. We've already worked out how a young man can come in. We will pay for the training. We get him to Chafer Seminary uh, to get the training, but to know the people he's ministering to and build a relationship and not just all of a sudden, boom. So, Mike, if you just stand up quick. Um, Mike is the guy who's uh, worked out one of these plans second person I'm going to uh, point to is our executive uh, director of the seminary. Uh, Mike, would you st- stand up too? Uh, I'll give you his, um, uh, his email. Uh, he's the point of contact. If you find people or you personally are interested, his email is director at chafer.edu. director at chafer.edu. And uh, his cell phone, if, uh, if it's okay to give the cell phone my mic, is 860-912-9888. And uh, he'll be the point of contact for these people who are interested. And one final word... We don't want, if you are a pastor and you have someone interested in this, we're not trying to divert him from supporting you. In in the priority line, if someone is interested in these things, just understand they can't live under two bosses. Uh, That's confusing. You're still the boss. You're the pastor. But if you do want to support the seminary in this way, uh, we'd appreciate the help. Um, I'm going to ask uh, Robbie uh, to conclude here. Great, well organized, and informative.
0: It's really good. Love, love those quotes. Okay, we've got uh, Alan wa- wants to give a quick announcement about the choir rehearsal this evening. All right, this is the last time we're going to talk about this. <laughs> uh, we do need a few more voices. I know a few people sing. What we're going to sing is simple and easy. And a few more voices will just make it sound a whole lot better. So we're going to practice at six thirty this evening, right up here, and uh, get ready to really knock them dead. So come on and help us out. Thanks. And then we'll have a resurrection. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, all right. It, it, where did Barb go? Okay. I wanted to get the volunteers to come out. They come out here. All the folks who are volunteering. This is probably right in the middle of the conference. It's one of our best attended sessions. So we just want to uh, express our appreciation to all of these folks who've taken, some of them taking time off of work, taking a lot of time for the last couple of months in order to um, get everything prepared uh, for the conference. So would you uh, give them a round of applause, please? They do a lot of work, a lot, a lot of work. We've got the greatest people for the greatest conference. All right, and there's one other person we want to we want to um, recognize, and and we're just so glad she's here, and that is uh, Sandy Meisinger, and she made it for the conference this year, so we're just glad to have uh, Sandy here. She was at George's side for so many years, supporting him, praying for him, and um, going through a lot of a lot of deep water at times. So we're just so thankful that Sandy could be here, and we could see her and encourage her. So okay, all right, let me uh, return thanks for the. For the food, Father, thank you for our time together fellowship, encouragement in your word challenge, and we pray for the seminary we pray for, we know that you provide for us. We have seen such great blessing this last year, and we are thankful for that and Father, we continue to pray for you to raise up leaders for the church, especially men who will take on the responsibility of being a pastor, a teacher, a leader in their local church and get the kind of training that they should have because to worship you to lead be the true worship leaders in a congregation we should pursue excellence and we should uh, pursue perfection and maybe in the pursuit of perfection we might achieve excellence so father we pray that you would challenge us in these areas thank you for the food we're to enjoy may our time together Uh, be a time of rich fellowship, getting to know one another. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.